and welcome to Culture Lab. I'm Christy Taylor. This is the show all about how science plays out in our cultural creations. Sometimes we talk about the science behind popular TV and movies. Other times we talk to fascinating authors about serious works of literature. And then there's today. Author John Scalzi calls his books the hamburgers of the science fiction world. They're not filet mignon, they're not potato chips, but they are really, really good, satisfying hamburgers. His latest book, Starter Villain, is out this week. It's the story of Charlie, a regular guy who suddenly has to learn how to be a supervillain, a totally real job that some people have. Some of his employees, it turns out, are sentient cats. Others are sentient dolphins. He has a volcanic lair and a space laser. And of course, he has to figure out how to get along with all the other supervillains. This is a funny, fun, heartfelt book. I finished it in just a few days of reading, and I laughed a lot. And then I pulled John into a conversation to talk about it. John, I feel like it's not too much of a spoiler to set up the premise of this book. You know, we have this ordinary guy. He's, in fact, a laid-off journalist, and he finds himself suddenly thrust into the world of real-life supervillains after the death of a mysterious uncle. These supervillains will feel very familiar to anyone who has watched pretty much any superhero or James Bond or other such movie. But in your world, quote the real world, who are these supervillains? Well, the supervillains are are the billionaires you meet every day as you walk down the street, taking part in your community, buying most of it up. And that's, I think, the whole thing, which is that the billionaires that we think of like in the James Bond books, they have some weird dependencies for their supervillainy that are like, for example, that nobody knows that they exist or that they operate or that they are up to nefarious plans that inevitably are, you know, global takeover. And it just seems like if you are going to do something where any of this stuff is even remotely plausible, you have to reconfigure what it is that it means to be a villain. Now, the good news, and here I'm using quotation marks, is that we do have really good examples of people who are kind of day-to-day villains. It was not my intent when I wrote this book to be as timely as it (laughs) turned out to be, but uh, 2023 was the year that a whole bunch of billionaires were just like, okay, mask off. Did you know I'm a terrible person? And also that it doesn't matter that I'm a terrible person because I have so much money that I'm insulated from any of consequence of that. So as it turns out, I feel that I've kind of nailed the moment and no one is less happy about that than I am. I mean, the billionaires that I have in this book are not any materially different from the robber barons of the Gilded Age of the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, right? So across the space of 120 years, um, it's still sort of the same bad behavior. And of course, the 20th century is also replete with, you know, quite a few people with uh, more money than morals, ethics, or sense. So no matter where you go in time, as long as we've had this sort of capitalist society, you've always had people like that. And prior to capitalism being the big thing, you you had the nobles and you had the royalty and you've had the emperors, you know, rich as Croesus is, you know, a phrase that comes to us across thousands of years. So 
the obnoxiously rich and far too powerful for their or our own good are ever with us. So no matter when um, this would have been read, the reader would have been able to attach some faces to the characters, even if they are, as they are in this particular book, mostly fictional. One more villain question, I think, before I get to some of the fun science stuff that you you dip into. But um, I feel like I learned way more than I was looking for when it comes to sort of the the logistics of how money moves and works and how being <laughs> rich doesn't actually mean you can spend your trillion dollars. No. Um, so, you know, these villains, they're they're ordinary and they're also kind of trapped by the system that they're benefiting from, too. Strangely, I mean. <laughs> strangely. How, how does that work? Well, no, and I think it's really interesting because, you know, for example, you look at Elon Musk and you say, oh, well, he's worth $250 billion. And Musk has, has said, well, but that's $250 billion that I can't access. He's like, I'm not, I'm not liquid to the tune of $250 billion. And he does actually have a good point that a lot of the wealth of the billionaire class is not stuff that they can immediately access. If Elon Musk or any other billionaire decided that they just wanted to access all of their money at one time, they would find out the amount of money that they have is absolutely unreachable to them. They would they would crash it would crash the market if Elon Musk tried to get liquid all at once. It just would be horrible for for the economy. And so this is kind of an interesting aspect of billionaire class. Now to be clear, Elon Musk and anybody else who's a billionaire has walking around money. He's not going to starve. He's going to be okay. He'll be able to afford his private jet and everything else like that. I was just like about that. to bring up the jet. Thank you. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's fine. But the way that money moves and acts and does what it does is different than, than people really expect. You know, a lot of the wealth of billionaires is for all intents and purposes, uh, illusory. You know, uh, the simple fact that you could lose $50 billion value over the course of a week because your stock dips, right? And people are like, oh, I, they can't fathom how much money that is. Um, and they also can't fathom that the billionaire who has lost the $50 billion is just waiting for the stock price to go back up and that they're, that they're fine. So when you are talking about just these vast sums of money and who owns what and how it works, there are different rules that apply there than apply to the person who's making $50,000 and owes $200 on their gas bill. All right. Well, let, let's go back to Charlie, our hapless hero slash villain, I guess we should call him. <laughs> so he's thrust into this world by the death of a mysterious uncle. He gets to learn all about what being a villain is about, starting with the fact that they really do have volcanic layers, which great for geothermal energy, but not so much for throwing your enemies to their death. I feel like this is like my my next party, uh, did you know, trick. Tell, tell yeah. us about that. There are tropes that we have for James Bond villains and supervillains and all that sort of stuff. And what I was interested in, and it's something that I've done before in previous books like Kaiju Preservation Society or Red Shirts, is looking at well-established cultural tropes or tropes in entertainment and going, okay, but why, right? So the volcano lair, you know, it used to be, you know, a hidden volcano lair where all the evil could happen, right? <laughs> and 
and they would have all these minions in in silver lame uniforms and and such. And I was interested, okay, in the practical aspects. You know, there's no longer you can no longer hide a volcano there. There are too many spy satellites above you. They know where you are. Not to mention right? all the scientists, right? I mean, right. they know where, where they, the where the volcanoes are. Yeah, where are they yeah, and and the minions, right? The minions who are hired. You know, what are they going to tell everybody? I'm sorry, I, you know, I'm going to go do this thing and you won't hear from me from six months. No, the minions have Facebook. The minions have social media. They're going to still be around. And so you have to design some reasons, some plausible reasons. So, for example, the reason you have a volcano lair is you have geothermal energy. The minions are not minions per se. They are, are researchers for startups and they are on the island and, you know, as part of these individual little startups that are part of a technology center that has been put on this island for tax purposes <laughs> and so on and so forth. And it makes it all sound reasonable, even as it all adds up to supervillain using the volcano lair to power his lasers for evil plots and stuff like that. And that was what was fascinating for me is, again, the James Bond villains and every other villain in film and TV, they work only within the context of those two hours, right? Like their organizations make no structural, like where are they getting their money? What are they going to do once they have collapsed the market or, you know, taken over the world? Is this someone who really, really wants to administer like global economic policy? No, they don't want to do that. And so again, you have to reconfigure what are all of these tropes and make it to something that both seems plausible within the real world and within the context of the story. And by plausible, again, air quotes here, enough for the story, but it's been fun trying to put rational reasons for volcano layers and lasers and such. Did you know before you started writing this book that lava is too dense to throw a human body into? I did. And you know why I know that? It's because mm. of Lord of the Rings, oh, right? Okay. So at the very end of Return of the King, they're fighting for the ring, Gollum and Frodo. And uh, Gollum gets it, but he's thrown off the thing. And he lands in the lava and he just goes bloop and uh, slowly sinks into the lava. And from a visual point of view, that makes perfect sense, right? But literally everybody who knows, knows anything about volcanoes or you know geology is like no that's not how it works it's that's yeah because it's rock it's super super dense it's fluid because it's incredibly hot and but it's still it's still very dense and so this is the thing that that threw a lot of people out and i wrote a whole piece about this where i was like really you are upset that within a magic volcano because it is a magic volcano it is mount doom uh, that it that it has that special property to actually forge the ring in the first place. What are the physics of that? You are worried that the lava is not sufficiently dense. And I I coined a term for this, which is called the flying snowman. And the flying snowman was my wife had this book that was called the snowman. It was reading to our daughter when she was a very small child. The snowman comes to life and it's doing things like oh, I remember that book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and was walking around, having a nice meal. And at the very end, it's like walking, running, 
flying. And my wife's like, flying? Snowmen can't fly. It's like, it was eating soup earlier in the book. And this is the thing that throws you out, you know? And so the flying snowman is the one thing and otherwise completely, yet you've completely bought in, but is the one thing that threw you out. I mean, the Lord of the Rings has elves and it has magic and it's got orcs and it's got eagles the size of Buicks. But the one thing that throws you out is the insufficiently dense lava, right? Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Well, and you get the lava right in this one, but um, <laughs> but you also have, like, you know, lasers that can seed rainfall and also, you know, carve initials on the moon, for example, you know, funded, of course, by the Department of Agriculture. As yeah. they would be. <laughs> but that's the whole thing is that, in fact, so the lasers that seed rain, that's a real thing. That's not something I've made up. That is actually uh, something that, that research has been done. And that's why it's there. Again, it's that putting the veneer of plausibility so that when you go, oh, yeah, so the lasers are seeding the clouds. Oh, and they're powerful enough, by the way, to carve initials on the moon. One of them is reasonable. The other one, not so much. But since you led with the reasonable thing, the other part people will buy into. Yeah, I think that means we need to talk about the dolphins next and the cats. But I want to start with the dolphins. Our hero, Charlie, he learns that he has inherited employees who are genetically engineered dolphins. They're sentient. They squeak into a speaker box and out comes all kinds of swearing and union rallying and class consciousness. Um, Dolphins are jerks, as we already, I think, understand from biology, but these dolphins are striking jerks. They're the bullies. They're like, you know, they're the awful people from high school, right? They are the cetacean equivalent of the people who slam you into your locker. And it was fun to actually kind of play that up because I still think among the general populace, there's the idea that dolphins are the cuddly unicorns of the sea, narwhals <laughs> notwithstanding. And to find out that they're like, oh, no, dolphins are the worst. They're just terrible, terrible people is kind of fun to play with. Something you worked in 
a couple times. I remember when this research actually came out last spring, dolphins taste each other's pee to identify yeah. each other. My editor yeah. at the time did not take me up on doing a story about that. And I feel like I'm finally vindicated that you made this Absolutely. plot point. So thank you. Absolutely. It's a, I've, I've, uh, you should feel vindicated. I mean, I remember reading that and I, and I remember kind of going, I don't know when I'm ever going to use that, but as God is my witness, I am <laughs> going to use that. Right. So it presented itself there, but it's also, like I said, it's, it's fascinating to take stuff that is actually true stuff that is actually scientific, but, you know, researched and, you know, part of the, a knowledge base of what we know, uh, but not everybody knows. And not only in the, in the case of the book, and again, no spoilers here, not only is brought up in the book, but in some ways is paid off, you know, Chekhov's, you know, Chekhov's urine, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you pick up the book, pay attention to that. Simple question. Are the cats, the sentient cats that type to communicate and are apparently management, are they based on your cats? No, they're not. And um, it's kind of funny to me because people just assume they are. It's like, that said, you know, one of the things that is absolutely true and I think is really important is acknowledging that cats like humans have very distinct personalities. Like all three of the cats that I currently have have very, very different personalities. One is super neurotic. The other is a pretty, pretty princess who demands attention. One is a chaos demon. And so when I was writing the non-human characters in this book, it was important to me to make sure that they were like fully realized characters, that I wasn't just be like, you know, look, it's a cat and it can communicate. It's like, no, no, that cat actually has to have their own personality and play a role that could only be played by this particular person who happens to be a cat. I really like that you don't even bother to try to explain how we might make sentient cats. <laughs> Just that they're all they're all clones of something that's been tinkered with. That feels like it wasn't necessary to explain because of course they probably are that smart already. Well, the the thing is there's two two ways to go about that. The first is you you're right. You know, we tend to define intelligence in very self-serving ways. We tend to evaluate intelligence by what we do, right? And in fact, there are any number of examples of animal intelligences that are not just intelligent, but in many ways as intelligent in their own specific domain that anything we can do. But the other thing about it is one of the best things you can do as a science fiction writer is know when not to explain things. And one reason for that is because I fancy myself an intelligent person, but there's only so much that I know. And if I try to get too deep in the waters of the things that I don't actually know, some nerd is going to call me out, right? Not even about whether the speculation is reasonable, but no. simply the stuff that we actually do know. I'm going to get wrong. But the other reason is, so I don't explain, you know, how it is that we have sentient cats. But I know that somebody out there is like, well, how would that work? And they will come up with that theory. And then when I'm on tour or at a convention or something, <laughs> they'll be like, I know how you did the sentient cats. And they will spin off this thing. And I'll be like, wow, that's amazing. You're so close to what I was thinking. 
So the genre, if, if this were, you know, a movie genre, I mean, th- this feels like a heist, you know, action, betrayal, secrets, twists, but our main character sucks <laughs> at, at like a lot of the necessary skills. I think what I'm trying to ask you is how you set up like such a satisfying heist with a character at the center who knows nothing, is new to the job, and doesn't have any of the James Bond skills. Well, and that's the interesting thing about Charlie, who is our main character. He's a former journalist. He is currently a substitute teacher, and he is smart enough to know that he knows nothing, right? There are some Which is things actually that a he... very rare skill in some ways. Yes, he's he is not he's not riding the Dunning Kruger train. Lord knows that there are enough people that if all of a sudden someone showed up and said, we are putting you in charge of this corporation, that's somewhere in their brain, they'd be like, why, yes, I deserve to be put in charge of this corporation. But the whole thing is, is that, you know, he does have training as a journalist. He does, he has gone to school and has learned some critical thinking and by his own personal inclinations, because getting an education is not necessarily the same as having intelligence. He recognizes his own set of limitations. But I think it was important to do that for two reasons. One, it would be absolutely unrealistic to have someone who absolutely has no exposure to this world at all, all of a sudden come in and master it, right? Um, But the other thing is, is that our character, our main character is, in this particular case, a stand-in for our readers. Our readers are not supervillains, or at least most of them aren't. I certainly hope <laughs> not. And so there has to be an entry point for them to be able to experience this world in that way. And Charlie gets to do that. Now, the circumstances that Charlie finds himself in over and over are he doesn't make mistakes because he is naive. You know, he makes mistakes because there is domain knowledge that he has not acquired. But as it turns out, um, that has both pluses and minuses. He's not hapless, right? There are times where in the course of the events of the book, and we don't want to get too much into it, but where his journalistic training allows him to poke holes into things that he's being told by others. And there are other places where, you know, who he is as a, as a person makes sense in the development of, of the story. But it absolutely is critical to the development of the heist. And you are correct. This is kind of like a heist story for reasons that will become clear to people as they read it, that it needs a character like him who is smart, smart enough to know what he doesn't know, but also smart enough to know when he can play a role in making things happen. And like I said, I think that that is a good stand-in for our readers. I assume that my readers are smart, but they don't necessarily know everything. And I want them to experience the same sort of both discovery and relevation that Charlie does over the course of the book. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcast. That was author John Scalzi talking about his newest novel, Starter Villain. It's out this week. I'm Christy Taylor. If you liked this interview, make sure you subscribe to our feed for more like it. Plus, our weekly news podcast and the Incredible Dead Planet Society all drop right here every Friday and Tuesday. Find more journalism from New Scientist on our website at newscientist.com. Bye for now.
This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.